You may turn to Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 and 18. There we read these words. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. One of the strongest passions to which we as human beings are susceptible is the passion of personal vengeance. A desire to get even with one who has hurt or offended us. And it may be manifested not only outwardly in what we do, but it may be manifested in our words as well, or in our thoughts and in our desires, which may lay buried beneath the surface within our beings. It doesn't have to issue necessarily forth in violence against someone. It can simply be that, that angry, that bitter spirit within us that would love to see that person dealt a particular type of blow because we're angry with him, because he has offended us in some way or hurt us in some way. Personal vengeance in our lives, dear ones, is always sinful because that is an office uniquely given to God who says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Vengeance will be meted out upon the wicked and the ungodly. True enough. But that is not our duty to accomplish that vengeance. God has delegated to the civil magistrate, a lawful civil magistrate, that particular office to mete out God's vengeance upon evildoers, according to Romans chapter 13. He is the, the messenger. He is the, the minister of God. It says in Romans chapter 13, to repay that vengeance to those who are wicked and evil. Therefore, whenever we are personally offended and there wells up within us a fire to get even with somebody for some alleged offense that is committed against us or an actual or real offense that's committed against us, let us understand that the source of that fire within us is our own pride, first of all. That is, we look at that person as deserving more wrath and condemnation because they have offended us than we ourselves deserve for the sins that we've committed. 
The end of that particular personal vengeance, dear ones, is hatred. Hatred. There's no other way to disguise that particular feeling that we have. It is hatred. That is desiring that others suffer misery for what they have done unto us. Now, as if these sins associated with personal vengeance were not bad enough, personal vengeance actually usurps the office and the authority of God himself, as I said earlier, because it is God's unique place to show vengeance. We do not have the right to exercise personal vengeance. And he has delegated that office there is a delegated office to the civil magistrate, but not to us personally. Now, we have other things to say about this issue, so let us consider our text in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 and 18, wherein we shall seek to answer these two questions that relate to personal vengeance. First of all, should we rejoice when our enemy falls? Proverbs 24:17. Second, why shouldn't we rejoice when our enemy falls? Proverbs 24:18. So first of all, the, that question, should we rejoice when our enemy falls? It says in Proverbs 24:17, "Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth." Here, when Solomon leaves no doubt as to what our disposition should be, when our enemy falls into various judgments or calamities, do not take personal pleasure in the misery of those who are even hostile to you. Do not delight in their personal misery that they endure and suffer. This is repeated a second time in the same verse in order to emphasize this particular truth. It says, first of all, in the first line, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and then the parallel thought, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. You see, there's a parallelism there. And God does that in order to emphasize the truth. He says it not to us simply once. He says this and communicates this truth to us twice. When those who oppose you, dear ones, fall into severe hardship, perhaps even due to their own sin, our duty is not to jump up and down for joy that they're finally getting what they deserve because of what they've done to you. At the end, the idea of personal vengeance. We're going to talk about God's vengeance in the sermon, but this we're talking about is personal vengeance. We do not jump up and down for joy at the calamities others suffer. If we would avoid the sin of personal vengeance, we must not find personal satisfaction and delight in the suffering and the misery of others. Even if they are wicked, 
even if they are cruel, and here it says, even if they are enemies. Let us consider other passages from the scripture which clearly lay out for us our duty to cease and desist from personal vengeance in the heart or with our mouth or in our actions. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, are very clear to this point. Matthew 5, verses 38 through 45, we read these words. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. There the word of God, Christ teaches that we are not to repay as we are treated. We are not to <clears throat> treat others as they have done unto us, but we are to treat them as we would have them do unto us. Matthew 5:38-45. then. Look with me at another passage. Romans chapter 12. Verses 17 through 21. The Apostle Paul teaching essentially the same truths that have just been stated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21 says, Recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You may also want to, if you have time later on, you want to look at some other passages. I'll just mention, you can look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. 
1 Thessalonians 5.15 and 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, which teach essentially the same thing. We have not only the explicit commands in Scripture that prohibit our personal vengeance, but there are approved examples as well. For example, we have Joseph, who you recall was treated abominably by his brothers, sold into slavery, had to suffer the the shame, the cruelty, the misrepresentation, the lies spoken against him. But he continued to trust the Lord and the Lord raised him up even to become the second man in command in all of Egypt, the greatest kingdom of the world at that time. And we find, however, as the end, Joseph saying this to his brothers who after the death of Jacob their father were no doubt shaking in their boots now will Joseph mete out to us his vengeance for what we have done unto him will he try to get even with us now for what we have done and how we so cruelly treated him Genesis 50 verse 20 we find the answer to that question. Joseph says to his brothers, But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. It was through that means, though his brothers were guilty of gross sins against Joseph. God turned that very wicked thing into a blessing in saving Jacob's family from starvation and famine. And so, Joseph was able to ascend to the second place in command in Egypt. God gave him the vision as to what would happen. The famine for seven years preceded by seven years of plenty. And he was able to preserve his own brethren who mistreated him so cruelly. You can think of how Hannah was treated by her rival, Panenna, married to the same man, Elkanah. Panenna had children, Hannah did not, and Panenna rubbed it in. You see, it was a... It was a uh, it was a unlike today, where we do not seem to have the same idea of the blessing of children. In that particular time, children were a blessing. They were considered an inheritance. And for Hannah not to have children was a great shame to her, a reproach, as it were, that she had to bear according to God's will, not because Hannah had sinned. It was simply God's will for her at that time in her life. And Panenna, her rival, rubbed her face in that all of the time, even to the point of her just weeping. Weeping uh, many times. Her husband said, Why are you so discouraged? 
why are you so sad, so melancholy? And it was over this particular thing. As I said, this is not the typical attitude that we face in the world today, unfortunately. But that is a biblical perspective of children. And God, however, did give to Hannah the grace not to repay her rival or her foe as she had treated Hannah, but rather gave her the grace to take her concerns to, the, to God in prayer. And God heard and answered her prayer and gave her Samuel, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And then in addition to that, even gave her more children after Hannah gave that child to the Lord to be raised within the tabernacle. There is the example of David. David was hated and pursued by Saul continuously. David had not offended Saul. God had simply said that David would be the one to replace Saul because of Saul's wickedness because of his vileness, because he had turned his back upon the Lord and, and uh, usurped the place of and the office of the priest in offering sacrifices. And so he chased David. David, on two different occasions, preserved Saul's life, though he could have smitten him down. He could have been rid of his enemy. He could have ended all of this Time, these years that he was running for his life, not being able to be in the temple of God or the tabernacle of God, not being able to celebrate the holy days, not being with his extended family, not enjoying that liberty, but living in the wilderness like a refugee, like a criminal. But he did not repay Saul as Saul had treated him. He did not. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And vengeance came to Saul. But David would not, at his own hand, do so. And certainly we have the example of Jesus Christ, who was abominably treated by the Jewish leaders, by the Romans. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, through 24, we read these words. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, was, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sins and his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Dear ones, the heart that has been broken by the mercy of God which God shows to sinners who are undeserving of the least blessing. 
when one sees himself as the chief of sinners, as he ought or as she ought to see, such a one will not proudly desire personal vengeance because he knows the mercy of God unto himself or unto herself. You remember this was the sin of Jonah who would not go to Nineveh because he knew God would be merciful to the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 through 2. You see, Jonah so desired that personal vengeance, his own personal vengeance, he had a place for this. He didn't want to see the mercy of God poured out upon the city of Nineveh. He simply wanted to see God's wrath, fire fall down from heaven and consume these people immediately. You remember this was the case with James and John, the sons of thunder, when they, the Samaritans would not receive Christ as he was passing through the city onto Jerusalem. They said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to immediately consume that city? Jesus said, you don't understand the nature of your spirit, where this is coming from. It is from a spirit of personal vengeance, not to satisfy the honor of God. And this was true of Jonah. You see, God wanted to show mercy to the undeserving. Jonah simply wanted to show vengeance to the undeserving. In fact, he had more mercy, the text says in Jonah, he had more mercy on a plant that God made to grow to provide shade for him to protect him from the sun and God then caused a worm or a caterpillar to come and to eat that plant so that it died and the sun then beat down upon his head. He had more mercy upon that plant than he did upon the entire city of Nineveh who had eternal souls and would spend either eternity in hell or in heaven. And apart from the gospel of Christ, they would spend the all eternity suffering in hell. Beloved, where there is a passion to show personal vengeance, there the mercy of God cannot be evidenced. Christ wept over Jerusalem as he considered the suffering and even the just vengeance of God that would be poured out upon that city 40 years later. He wept over what they were to go through. Paul cried out that he would be accounted, he would rather be accounted accursed of God in order that wicked Israel that had put to death their Savior, in order that Israel might be saved. Are we better? Are we better than wicked Israel that wanted Christ crucified? Absolutely not. For it was our sin, dear ones. It was our sin that put Christ upon that cross. 
We are no better than Israel. They're responsible, yes. The Romans were responsible, yes. But we're all responsible as it was our sin that drove him there. You see, there was an ever-growing knowledge of the infinite mercy and love of God is all that can break the hardened spirit of vengeance, of personal vengeance and hatred. One of the evidences of God's work of mercy in your life and in mine will be that we do not take pleasure, nor do we rejoice in the misery and the calamity of those who are hostile to us, whether they be Christian or non-Christian. Dear ones, this idea of personal vengeance, it is the desire of terrorists rather than desire of Christians. Well, in our text, who are the enemies concerning whom we are not to rejoice when they fall? Well, let me share with you three possibilities. And I think all three may be true in in whatever circumstance or situation we may face. First of all, they may be hostile toward us for no apparent reason at all. We may not know. We may not understand why somebody is hostile toward us. But simply because we do not know gives us no reason to show personal vengeance toward them. Secondly, they may be hostile toward us because we are Christians. They hate Christians. They despise what we stand for as Christians. And so they may be our enemy. They may be hostile toward us for that reason. Well, still, we have no biblical warrant to take pleasure in their misery, their pain, or their heartache. We have no biblical warrant to exercise personal vengeance toward those who are hostile because toward us because we're Christians. Thirdly, they may be hostile toward us, and they may be Christians, but they may be hostile toward us because we tell them what we believe about the truth And because we say, based upon the word of God, what they believe and what they're practicing is wrong. And they may be hostile toward us because we vocalize or verbalize that. Because that is a a faithful witness. Do we have a responsibility if we love others to seek to show them the truth, whether they're Christians or not? Absolutely. If we simply avoid those issues, we can't say we truly love someone. Because when we love someone, we want what is best for that person. And what is best for every Christian is to grow in their knowledge of the truth. If I'm wrong, if I'm in sin, I should want you to come and to tell me where I'm in sin. Because that is the loving thing to do to me and for me. But so often, we would rather become personally vengeful, resentful and bitter towards someone who confronts us that way. Now, obviously, when there is a confrontation in that way, to do so in wrath and anger and pride and self-righteousness is wrong. 
When we confront others in that manner, we must do so in love. Looking to ourselves and how weak and frail we are, even with tears in our eyes, not boasting, not coming across in that type of a manner, because all we have to say, I'm afraid, more often than not, will fall upon deaf ears at that point, even if it's right. Even those brethren, dear ones, those who are considered brethren, fellow Christians, who walk contrary to the truth, contrary to the apostolic tradition that was given to them in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, though they are said by Paul, we need to avoid them if they are obstinate and they walk contrary to the truth, If they're rebellious, they continue to walk contrary to the truth. Our responsibility is to avoid them. But are we to treat them as enemies? Listen to what is said by the Apostle Paul concerning fellow Christians who walk contrary to the truth. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle... Note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's how we treat even Christians who walk not according to the truth. We lovingly bring the truth to them. And we do so, uh, if necessary, many times. But if we see that they are stubborn and obstinate in their way, we do may avoid them. We may not have company with them, that's true. But we don't treat them that way because they're our enemy, but because we care for them and love them and want to see them grow in the knowledge of the truth. We may hate the error that they have embraced, We may have to avoid them in such cases. But we do not hate them as enemies of Jesus Christ. We love them, even if they mistreat us, even if they persecute us, even if they lie about us. Dear ones, when we're persecuted for the truth, it shouldn't have the the effect in our lives of making us more proud, self-righteous, or vindictive. When we are persecuted for the truth, it should humble us. It should smite us to the ground. It should cause us to become meek. And we should pray, God grant to me the love that I should have even toward those who persecute me. We may hate the cause or the error, as I said. But if they are Christians, let us treat them nevertheless as brethren, praying for them, praying for their reconciliation, their repentance from their sin and their error. Well, how do we overcome the spirit of personal vengeance? How do we overcome that fire within us? 
Well, let me give you a few practical ways. First of all, we have to look for the venomous viper of personal vengeance under the rock of pride and under the rock of self-righteousness because that's where personal vengeance will hide under pride and self-righteousness. We must see, dear ones, our pride and our self-righteousness as enemies to be destroyed rather than lovers to be cherished. What have we to be proud of or self-righteous about anyway? Absolutely nothing. Because everything we have, whether of a physical, material nature or of a spiritual blessing, has been granted to us out of God's mere grace. Not because we deserve it, but contrary to us deserving anything, He has freely bestowed upon us everything that we have. Simply of mercy and grace. We are what we are. Only and always by the grace of God. Secondly, the second way to fight this and overcome this spirit of vindictive uh, personal vengeance in our lives is this. Where there exists envy in our lives, where there exists rivalry, in our lives, where there exists resentment toward others and bitterness toward others, you may be assured that if those sins are not dealt with, they will issue forth in personal vengeance. And so look for those particular sins cropping up within your life and deal with them, repent of them. Seek and cry out to God that he would help you to overcome those sins. And replace those particular passions of envy, rivalry, resentment, and hatred. Replace those with other passions, which I believe if you show forth these passions toward those who have done you wrong, you'll find much productive results coming from it. Replace the sinful passions with the Christian graces of pity and mercy toward others. In other words, instead of being resentful and angry and hateful toward one, understand that it's only the grace of God that you are not acting in the same manner. You're not better than that person. We would all do exactly what someone has done to us if it wasn't that God had shown us mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. And so we ought to pity them and pray that God's mercy be bestowed upon them rather than leveling hatred and resentment and vengeance, our own personal vengeance upon them. Thirdly, In order to overcome personal vengeance, look to the suffering of Jesus Christ. For in Christ's suffering can be seen a Savior who did not burn in personal vengeance towards sinners who mistreated him, but a Savior who burned in redeeming love toward those who deserve divine vengeance forever in hell. 
Dear ones, it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that breaks the vindictive heart. There is nothing else that can break the vindictive heart. The cross of Jesus Christ alone can do so. It is the death and the resurrection of Christ that supplies all the grace that we need to overcome that personal vengeance in our life. And when we fall into personal vengeance, it's almost a sure sign that we have fallen away from our first love, Jesus Christ. We need to renew that first love with Christ and to see his suffering and what he endured and how he, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, did not revile when he was reviled. Fourthly, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, according to Romans 12:21. Commit yourself to Christ to do that which is for the good of those who attack you. Do not return evil for evil. That takes sometimes simply a commitment to do what is right, not because you feel like doing what's right. You may feel like poking someone right back in the nose because of how they've treated you. But don't act on your feelings. Act contrary to your feelings at that point. Act in faith and say, I know that would be wrong to do even though I feel like doing it. But act in accordance with what God's word has taught us to do. Do not repay evil for evil. But contrary, don't even leave it in a neutral state and not repaying evil for evil, render good to those who mistreat you. Do something in return that is good unto them. Is what the Lord Jesus teaches and what Paul teaches. Now this does not mean that we cannot legitimately defend ourselves against verbal or bodily attacks. It simply means that in so doing, when we defend ourselves, we must ever keep in mind that we do not personally retaliate and attack one as one has done to us. Dear ones, legitimate and lawful self-defense is not vengeance. It is biblical to defend. When we are attacked, our reputation is attacked. We can defend ourselves and say that's not true. When Jesus Christ is attacked, we can say that's a lie. That's not true. When we are bodily attacked or loved ones are attacked, we can defend ourselves and others legitimately. But that's not retaliation. That's not personal vengeance. That's simply seeking to protect and defend the life of one who is loved. But there are some objections raised which we must also consider very carefully about this whole matter of personal vengeance. What about the various places in Scripture where God's people rejoice with God's approval over their enemies? Consider the rejoicing of God's people over Pharaoh in Exodus 15.1. There they rejoice in God's holy vengeance, dear ones, I would submit to you, rather than in their own personal vengeance. They rejoice that God has smitten his enemies. Or we read in Psalm 58.10, 
another one of those passages that speaks of this type of of holy vengeance. Psalm 58.10 says, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Again, I would submit to you that this is not rejoicing in personal vengeance that we ourselves bring upon someone. It's not simply rejoicing in their calamity that they endure. It's not saying I won't help somebody even if they're my enemy who is in need. This is talking about, again, God's righteous vengeance, his holy vengeance that he brings upon the wicked. And so, if there is, in fact, an enemy who suffers some extreme judgment from God, and this may seem strange, but on the one hand, we can say that God has repaid those who are wicked and evil for what they in, in the way in which they deserve from God. But we can at the same time minister in love even to such ones and say, if there is calamity or if there is misery that's been suffered, we can say, how can I help that person who is in need? How can I show them the mercy of God? Both can be true. Because God pours forth his blessings, his goodness upon the wicked, as well as the righteous. But the scripture teaches God does clearly hate his enemies. God pours forth his vengeance upon his enemies. And yet God loves even those who prove to be his enemies because they are made in his image and he sends all kinds of blessings upon them. Don't you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The fact that God even delays his judgment and pouring forth his wrath upon those who deserve it ought to turn them to God, not to make them greater rebels against God. Likewise, we see in Revelation 6.10, martyrs who plead for God's vengeance to be poured out upon the wicked who have taken their lives. But again, they are not praying for or singing there or praying for personal vengeance to be wrought. They are praying that God's holy vengeance in his time be wrought upon the wicked. You see, dear ones, even in such prayers that we find on the lips of the saints, calling for God's vengeance to be brought upon the recalcitrant, the obstinate, the rebellious, those who refuse to turn from their sin, their wicked ways. Understand that this is even done with the idea, with the view to their repentance. Listen listen to what it says in Psalm 83, verses 13 and 16. O my God, make them like a wheel, as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth a wood, 
And as the flame setteth the mountains on fire, so persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame than this, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. That they may seek thy name, O Lord. That they may come to recognize that thou art the living God. Thou cannot be trifled with. Thou cannot be treated lightly. Thou art the one true living God who has created all. Another objection that is offered. Can't we show righteous indignation against the sin of our enemy? Yes, absolutely. We can show righteous anger against the, the uh, sin of our enemy. But so often, dear ones, we cloak our personal vengeance by saying that it is righteous indignation. And we need to be able to distinguish the one from the other. Dear ones, it is not righteous indignation that desires to get even with one who sins or offends us. It is not righteous indignation that takes personal pleasure in the misery of another human being when he falls into calamity. It is not righteous indignation, dear ones, who will not extend a helping hand to relieve the suffering of even one's enemy. That's not righteous indignation. Righteous indignation, dear ones, is a holy disapproval and hatred of all that is contrary to the revealed will of God. Righteous indignation begins with one's own sin. I'm righteously indignant, first of all, about the sin I've committed against God. How I've offended God. How I've offended my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my wife, my children, my mother and my father, my brother and my sister. I'm first consumed with righteous indignation about my own sin. And then... I'm righteously indignant about the sins of others and how they offend the most holy and high God. And righteous indignation, dear ones, not only looks to the holiness of God, but as I just mentioned, it also looks to the mercy of God upon all undeserving sinners, even the worst and the chief of sinners. Righteous indignation does not indulge, therefore, in personal vengeance. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but rather leaves a vengeance to God who promises to repay in his appointed time. Dear ones, have we been making excuses for personal vengeance hidden in our hearts, expressed with our mouths or performed by our hands, calling it righteous indignation? Whether it's expressed at home or at work, or even in the church, toward one another. We may be able to fool others to some degree, but we cannot fool God. God knows whether it is indeed righteous indignation or whether it's personal vengeance. And God will not be mocked. The second main point, and this again will go very quickly, is this. Why shouldn't we rejoice when our enemy falls? Back to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 18. Why shouldn't we rejoice when our enemy falls? 
It says there, lest the Lord see it and it displeased him and he turned away his wrath from him. There are three steps to this answer given by Solomon as to why we shouldn't rejoice when our enemy falls. First of all, the all-seeing and all-knowing God who made us, who sees into our very hearts where personal vengeance takes root. He knows it. He sees it. Lest the Lord see it, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 18 says. We may think we can hide it, yet nourish it in our souls. But the Lord, dear ones, tells us, take no comfort. It's just because it's not expressed, just because it's buried beneath the surface, take no comfort in the fact that God takes pleasure in personal vengeance, in our desires, our thoughts, our plans, our schemes, and anything buried beneath. That's why at the end of the psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 139, after it is praying that God would give, David prays, give me a a perfect hatred. Because David prays that way, not because those who have offended him, he takes personal vengeance toward, but he is praying because God's honor has been maligned. It is God's honor, it is God's truth that has been lied about. And so he has a perfect perfect hatred because people have made themselves the enemies of God, not merely because people have made David their enemy. But even at that, David says at the conclusion, because he doesn't even know his own heart with regard to this whole matter of righteous indignation versus personal vengeance, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So even when it is right for us to hate Always it's right to hate that which is evil. But when a particular situation confronts us, we still should pray, Lord, search my heart. Because I don't even know it as well as I ought to know it. But thou, O Lord our God, does know it perfectly. That's the first step that Solomon gives as to why we shouldn't rejoice when our enemy falls The second part of the answer is this. The Lord, having seen this personal vengeance in our life, he will find it evil in his eyes. 24.18, Proverbs 24.18 says, and it displeases him. God will find it displeasing to him when we show personal vengeance and rejoice in the calamity, the misery, and the fall of our enemies. The Lord will not countenance this evil when you have directed your personal vengeance toward one who actually deserves God's vengeance. Two passages that you may want to look at. 2 Chronicles 28.9 and Isaiah 47.6 and these passages you can certainly find there that for example in Isaiah 47.6 the Babylonians were directed by God, God says, to bring upon Israel his vengeance. 
but they far exceeded all bounds of mercy. They were so harsh and so cruel in what they did that God says that he will get even with them. His vengeance will be poured out upon them for they're exceeding all lawful bounds in that respect. For he that is glad at calamities, Proverbs 17.5 says, he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Shall not be unpunished. The third reason we're not to rejoice in the fall of our enemy that's found in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 18, is this. The Lord will remove his holy anger from the enemy. He will remove it from the enemy. And I think the implication is it will fall upon us instead. It will fall upon us instead. He will turn away his wrath from him. We're taught by the Lord, and I want to close with this thought, We're taught by the Lord in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. I'm just going to read this to you. There were present at that season some that told him, that is Christ, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Dear ones, when we see others suffering, friend or foe alike, when we see others suffering, rather than personally rejoicing in his pain and misery, God calls us to repentance in our own lives. Unless ye repent, ye will all likewise suffer, and not for a period of time. Not simply temporally, but ye will all likewise perish in hell forever, the Lord Jesus says. The suffering of others is not a time to boastfully gloat, but it is a time to reverently reflect upon our own daily need of the mercy of Jesus Christ and to repent of our sins. Because if God were to be just with us, we would have suffered that which others have suffered, and far more. Remember that when God's holy vengeance is poured forth upon mankind, there is also God's holy mercy that is extended to all who will come to him. The same judgment is intended to show the righteousness of God, but at the same time the mercy of God who will, upon all who will come to Christ. In Isaiah 26, 9, it says something to the effect that when the judgments of God are upon the earth, the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, will learn righteousness. Will learn righteousness. That, let us keep in mind, is the goal toward which that judgment falls. That the inhabitants of the earth will learn righteousness. 
I doubt not that in the events of September the 11th, 2001, those planes flew into the World Trade Center and decimated in those buildings and all the lives that were lost in them. I doubt not that God's holy vengeance was seen against a nation that has turned its backs upon the one true living God. I doubt that. Not at all. But I doubt not that in the same events, God's rich mercy was seen in calling this nation unto himself through the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear ones, rejoice not when thine enemy falleth. Let us stand together in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.